Uh, before we turn to the Bunyan study, I had come across something in my study this uh, past few weeks in preparations in the uh, book of Judges, chapter 6. Uh, one of the things, and I always, of all of my studies as I go through the book, I wait for the very last book I read. Uh, in my preparations is this book, Commentary on Judges by Richard uh, Rogers, 1615, which Brother Gormley got me. And I save it to last for two reasons. One thing, it is so, so, so hard to read, I put it off. <laughs> the other reason is there's always such weight and profundity to what he says that I want to give it Time and meditation, I don't want to read it academically and just rush through it, look for notes. I want to consider his thoughts deeply. And uh, this section uh, here uh, of chapter 6, uh, the section beginning at verse 11 or 12, which we took up this morning, among many other things in uh, Roger's comments uh, on that section of Judges 6, he goes off somewhat uh, off onto a little rabbit trail of talking about work, labor, men and their labor, because Gideon is laboring. He's in the, there in that wine press threshing, uh, threshing wheat. And, uh, I did not and probably will not make a point in my sermons that uh, when you study the, the, the whole person, the, the whole life of, of Gideon and gather up all the pieces of information that you can try to put together a history of himself and his family, uh, apparently Gideon came from, uh, we would say, they wouldn't have used anything like this, this terminology, but we would say he came from an upper crust, uh, at least himself. Not, not his tribe was not notorious but his own family within that tribe was of some rank and station and certainly they had servants Gideon had servants he would not have been typically doing this work that he was doing in threshing this wheat and uh, so uh, Rogers kind of goes off on to uh, a little trail of discussing this whole matter of a man's relationship to his labor, to his work, his place and its connection to and and the the what is often a man made gap between a person of riches and a person working uh, <laughs> I guess because this goes to the internet, I won't use any names. But there is a man here in Coweta County. I'm, I'm stricken with it every time I see him and talk to him. There's a man here in Coweta County who is quite wealthy. is worth literally millions. And yet he goes to his office every day and does what he's done his entire life and including the manual dirty labor that has made him rich. And uh, I never cease to be amazed every time I see him and do business with him 
and talk with him. I never cease to be amazed at how uh, how absolutely comfortable he is in just being who he is and doing what he does and no thought of any sense of not working anymore. And he's a very old man. <laughs> and he wouldn't think of not getting up every day and going to work and doing the dirty part of the job of the business that he owns. And uh, this is kind of the line of thinking that Rogers takes up in this reading that I wanted to give you <clears throat> today. I think it's well worthy, uh, whatever, uh, about our, our normal treatment of Pilgrim's Progress. He says, whereas tillage, that was, of course, farming, the, the plowing, tillage, keeping cattle, planting in the fields, and grafting with such like employments are both delectable, gainful, and honest, and such as chase away many needless charges and much ill company, and then in parentheses, which is a great waster. And the ill-spent time in such vain exercises as some people delight in. And if it be not allowed to men of worship, now that's a phrase, men of worship, as used in this writing, he's talking about high-ranking men, men of station, men of considered in the upper echelon, we would say, high-ranking. He says, if it be not allowed to men of worship to pass their time in such manner, but that even they must occupy their talent till the Lord come and not pass the time in fleshly ease-taking, play, idleness, and other like profane behavior. Much less is it tolerable in meaner persons to be ill-employed. But besides this, seeing by so fit an occasion as I am led to speak, I will therefore say a little of this common sort of people. Now he's going to speak to commoners. <laughs> He says, I will speak a little to this common sort of people. For the most part, for the most part, and then again, he has a parenthetical. Setting aside the scum, his word, not mine, the scum of towns, I mean the riotous and godless poor who live upon the sweat of others, into princes. This I may say. They take pain enough. And a man shall not need to spend much time. In persuading them to work. But this is hardly beaten into them. To observe the due manner of working. Or the end why. Or the ground whereupon. He says if you're, you're wasting your time. 
trying to, to beat into these people, any of these concepts, why you should work, what the benefits of work. You, you're wasting your time talking to these people. The motive is penury. The end is covetousness. And the manner is brutish. They lack and would have to defray the hard work, hard world. They, in other words, they, they don't have anything, but they want what they need to defray the hardships of the world or to, or to bestow upon their lusts and to maintain themselves in the pride of life. But neither work they because they think it is a sin to be idle, not because they look for any other fruit of their labor, have the bringing in of the penny, they see not whose commandment it is that they should labor. Genesis 3. Therefore they go through it with vexation, discontent, distrust, endless carping, and tying God to their girdle to give what success they desire. They work. When they work, they don't do it with the right motive. They don't do it with the right spirit. And they have the they have the audacity to ask God to bless it and to give them what they want. <laughs> wow. To tie God to their girdle and give what success they desire. Which if they get, they take it for granted that he loves them. And if not, they storm. Wow. I think I've seen a lot of those folks on the news this week. To the impure, all things are impure, the Bible says. And so are their callings. They do the works of them commonly, not to shun noisome lusts, temptations, and the fruits of, of, of sloth, nor to serve God's providence, neither to sharpen and fit themselves thereby to religious exercises and to good duties, nor to avoid offensive burdening of others, nor to do good and relieve them that won't, and so obey God in all of this. No, to speak the truth when they are in their shops, at markets, in their fields, they are far from setting God before their eyes. Much less do they believe that God is with them there to bless them in their work as well as they as when they are occupied in the duties of religion. Sinister ends and causes do compel the most to yield some obedience to God's commandment. But doubtless, if all were now, quote, men of worth and might live of themselves, we should have few workers. Now let me read that again, because we're there. Doubtless if all were men of worth, that is, they had everything they wanted, and might live of themselves, we should have few workers. Because you see, they're not working for the right reason. They don't view work as a calling. They don't view work as an obligation before God to glorify him, to use the means he has appointed. That's not their reason. Their reasoning is self-serving and to have what they want. And in 
1615, Rogers was saying, if you let a people, you make a way to give men everything they want, they won't work. 1615, this was 1615. As we see by their words, say, oh, such a man is happy. Why? Because he need not work nor toil as we do, but live easily and enjoy the world at will. And by this they be right that they could be content to do so too, if necessity urged them not to do otherwise. Therefore their labor is as displeasing to God as their idleness in a manner as they use it. A woeful thing, and not without the curse of God upon such as will not learn a better direction. He said there's a curse of God on these people that think like this. That whereas some go about their, their work in faith, believing that because they are God's beloved, therefore God will give them rest, blessing, and success, Others rise early, sit up late, drudge and drawl, eat and the bread of care, and drink the water of affliction, yet either they thrive not, or at least they are as much to seek of soul provision, I mean grace and hope of salvation, at the end of their wearisome life as at the beginning. Whereas it should have been their first work after they came to the years of discretion that is, to seek the work of salvation, which should teach us wisdom and not give God a short and formal pittance of service when we be at church on the Sabbath. But seeing that great work is to seek with the most, seeing that great work is to seek with the most, therefore to give all their diligence thereunto, that is, to make their salvation Sure that all the fixed, uh, six days we may wholly give up ourselves to other affairs without so much as minding God or godliness. For the Lord will have us serve him religiously as well as, as well in actions civilly, not religious as holy. And this is the scope of this third commandment which tieth the service of God to every part of our lives. This third commandment ties the service of God to all of the parts of our lives. That's the scope of the third commandment. As well as the second doth, to religious duties, and therefore must be extended to our particular callings as being the greatest part of our time and wherein our lives are most taken up. If we view work wrong, we're dishonoring God, and he is not blessed, he will not bless it. And he says the propensity of the soul of the sinner is that if you'll give him everything he thinks he wants, he absolutely will not work. 
He has no conviction about working. He only works to satisfy his lust and provide himself with what he wants. I thought that was quite a quite a thing <laughs> to be said in the context of our present day and uh, the so-called labor shortage. There will be labor shortage, said Rogers in 1615, when you make it possible for men to have everything they want because they have no conviction about working. So, I thought you might uh, enjoy that little reading. Uh, it is difficult reading, and look at the book later, you can see why. I mean, it's not just old English. It's, it's ancient uh, English and ancient characters, the, the actual letters. Very hard to read, but once you get the words and you get the concept in your mind, it's certainly uh, blessed and beneficial. We'll take up a reading today in uh, Bunyan, and uh, I have in my, I have in, marked in my uh, in my book that our reading will begin with uh, the paragraph that starts out. Then said Great Heart. To Mr. Valiant for truth, thou hast worthily behaved thyself. Is that correct? Is that what all of you have? Okay. I thought so. I just want to make sure. Then said great heart to Mr. Valiant for truth. Uh, after his great testimony, by the way. It's on the heels of his testimony. Thou hast worthily behaved thyself. Let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him. As I say, this is on the heels of the great battle and which he had, for truth, had and fought bravely until his hand was bonded, if you please, to the, to the sword. And they, uh, Greatheart commends him as having fought valiantly, worthily, and then he says, let me see your sword. So he showed it to him. And when he had taken it in his hand and looked thereon for a while, he said, ha, it is a right Jerusalem blade. It is a right Jerusalem blade. And Inglis, uh, I believe it was Inglis, had a comment English said, as Greatheart presents a guide of pilgrims, Valiant for Truth, says English, is a private citizen, uh, sorry, private Christian of the same noble disposition. There is a touch of true genius in the remark of Greatheart regarding this sword when he said, ha, it is a right Jerusalem blade. Inglis said there is there is a touch of genius in that statement. He has this poem. Inglis does. His sword was in his hand, still warm with recent fight. 
ready that moment at command through rock and steel to smite. It was a two-edged blade of heavenly temper keen, and double were the wounds it made where'er it smote between. This right Jerusalem blade. Well, he said it is a right Jerusalem blade. Value for truth says it is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding if he can but tell how to lay on. Its edge will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones, soul and spirit, and all. And of course, you know what he's talking about. The scriptures. This right Jerusalem blade. But I would encourage you to underline and keep to your heart, put a star beside it, if he can but tell how to lay on. Our Bible is a great, powerful, two-edged weapon. But its effectiveness for you rests on your ability to use it. To know how to lay on. The word of God is infinitely powerful. But its limitation is the one who's using it. You remember the Lord Jesus, that's a very classic illustration preachers use about using the word of God. When Satan came to the Lord Jesus to tempt him, what did he fight him with? The word of God. In everything he said, he responded with the word of God. But he responded appropriately and with the appropriate word. We must be keen to know how to use the word of God. Because without that ability, without that knowledge, we're impotent. Even though we have the word, we're impotent. He, valiant for truth, laid on well and was successful. He knew how to use this right Jerusalem blade. And I can't emphasize that too much. That's so important that you take to your heart your responsibility to know how to use the blade. Great heart said, but you fought a great while. I wonder you were not weary. Valiant said, I fought till my sword did cleave to my hand. And then they were joined together as if a sword grew out of my arm. And when the blood ran through my fingers, then I fought with most courage. My goodness. Great heart said, thou hast done well. Thou hast resisted unto blood striving against sin. Thou, hast, thou shalt abide by us. Come in and go out with us. For we are thy companions. And then they took him, washed his wounds, 
and gave him of what they had to refresh him. And so they went on together. And so now Valiant for Truth joins this company. From now on, he will walk with them in their pilgrimage, in their journey to the celestial city. He has fought well. He has known how to use with skill, willed it with skill, this right Jerusalem blade. That will be needful. That will be useful for them. And so they went on together. Now as they went on, Mr. Greatheart was delighted in him. For he loved one greatly that he found to be a man of his hands. Because there were in company they that were feeble and weak, therefore he questioned with him about many things, as at first what countryman he was. Valiant said, I am of dark land, for there was I born, and there my father and mother are still. How often is that the case? That one may become valiant for truth while their father and mother still stay in dark land. Mm. What a thing. What a thing. He's given testimony where he came from. He said, I came from dark land. But it's on his heart to say in giving his testimony it's on his heart to say, my father and mother are still there. He's valiant for truth. But he hadn't forgotten that his father and mother are still in Darkland. Darkland, said the guide, doth not that lie in the same coast with the city of destruction? Oh, yes, it doth. Now that which caused me to come on pilgrimage was this. Now here's a wonderful, wonderful testimony. That's why I put the title in the bulletin, Testimony Time. Here's a wonderful testimony. <laughs> I won't say it. Wonderful testimony, Testimony Time. He said we had one, we had one Mr. Tell Truth came into our parts, and he told it about what Christian had done that went from the city of destruction, namely how he had forsaken his wife and children and had betaken himself to a pilgrim's life. Now understand the context here. He's talking, he's testifying in the presence of that wife and children. <laughs> He's testifying in the presence of that wife and children. And he's telling them, I heard the story of this man, this pilgrim, who had forsaken everything, everything, his wife and children, and had betaken himself to a pilgrim's life. It was also confidently reported how he had killed a serpent that did come out to resist him in his journey and how he got through to whither he intended. It was also told what welcome he had at all his Lord's lodgings 
especially when he came to the gates of the celestial city. For there, said the man, he was received with the sound of a trumpet by a company of shining ones. He told also how all the bells in the city did ring for joy at his reception and what golden garments he was clothed with, with many other things that now I shall forbear to relate. In a word, that man so told the story of Christian and his travels that my heart fell into a burning haste to be gone after him. Nor could father or mother stay me. So I got from them and I came thus far on my way. <laughs> well, he heard a testimony. I found a copy of a poem written by a fellow. I don't know who this fellow is, and I didn't take the time to look him up. Perry Tanksley, 1980, this poem was published. It's entitled, I Caught Your Faith. He said, I saw you stand bravely for years, but saw no trace of senseless fears. I saw you stand calm through stress, but caught no glimpse of bitterness. I saw you stand prayerful in grief, but saw no trace of unbelief. Though you spoke well of Jesus Christ, I caught your faith by watching your life. Hmm. Valiant for truth testifies that he heard the testimony pilgrim and his heart burned within him and he said I want to go after this man and he became valiant for truth great heart said you came in at the gate did you not that's important. Nobody goes to the celestial city, climbs over the wall, or comes another way. You've got to come in by the gate. You came in by the gate, did you not? By it for truth says, yes, yes. For the same man also told us that all would be nothing if we did not begin to enter this way by the gate. I've said the reason why so many professors, professors of religion set out and go on for a season but fall away and come to nothing at last is because they do not enter into the pilgrim's path by Christ who is the gate. They do not see themselves quite lost, ruined, hopeless, and wretched. Their hearts are not broken for sin. Therefore, 
They do not begin by receiving Christ as the only Savior for such miserable sinners. But they set out in nature's strength, and not receiving nor living upon Christ, they soon fall away. This is the reason for this inquiry. Did you come in at the gate? It is a question we ought to put to ourselves and not be satisfied until we're sure of the answer. Did you come in by the gate? Did you come in by the gate? <laughs> I've been with uh, I've been with Luke at times when we've been visiting, dealing with seeking to talk to sinners, and uh, folks are always quick to talk about how religious they are and what religion they have and blah 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 blah. And uh, I've watched Luke; it's it's always been a blessing to me. That he'll listen to them talk for a while and then, but eventually he's always going to come to the same, same thing. He's going to say, I want you to tell me how you met Christ. Tell me about meeting Christ. <laughs> What's he saying? He's asking Bunyan's age old question. Did you come in by the gate? Avmi says it's a sober question. We need to ask ourselves. Don't be satisfied until you're sure of the answer. Did you come in by the gate? Everything else is lost if you do not. We'll stop there for today. I took some of our time with these other things. So we'll stop there and open it up to you if you want to share a testimony or if you have a question. Yes. Yeah, amen.
man must be able to know how to lay on. If he can but tell how to lay on. That's a, that's a valuable statement. All right, any other comments or questions? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The reading of the lives of those who've gone before. Great prophet. <laughs>